arms and in field in a tree. Anything is fair game, even Kike's dirty pants. And maybe if you're lucky, we'll co-call by the chance. You never know precisely where it's gonna go. By definition, effectively wild. Hello and welcome to episode 1999 of Effectively Wild, a Fangrass baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangrass and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Doing great. My heart is still warmed by Drew Maggi's Major League debut. <laughs> <laughs> it happened. I was nervous because he didn't get into the first game after we talked about it, but fortunately he did pinch it for Andrew McCutcheon the game after that and is starting also as we record on Thursday. So that's yeah. exciting. How about that? But what a moment that was. It what was as wonderful as anyone could have hoped that it would be. Yeah. I mean, it finally, it finally happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And fortunately, the Cody Bellinger mistake was not made again, where there was a pitch clock violation during an ovation. At right. least they did let him soak up the adulation of the crowd. And they were actually chanting Maggi. I mean, good job, Pirates fans. We talked about how things yes. are going great for the Pirates these days. So Pirates fans in a great mood and obviously well-informed about the story of Drew Maggi, the yes. almost 34-year-old minor league veteran. They all listened to Effectively Wild and they knew who Drew Maggi was and why this was exciting. And umpire Jeff Nelson let him soak up the cheers and yes. the moment. Although he did then incur a pitch clock violation <laughs> for <laughs> the second strike. One, he came yeah. in that one honestly, you know? Yeah, right. Yeah. I, I think it was probably the most poignant pitch clock violation of the season because it was like he was trying to make the time last longer, you know? He, he waited way more than a decade to make it to that moment and yeah. he's trying to savor it. And, well, you can't do that because pitch clock. But, <laughs> but at least, you know, they let him have the initial moment. And then after that, I think it's it's fair game, right? I mean, you can't probably give him a blanket dispensation for right. the entire plate appearance, I suppose. No. <laughs> so I don't fault him for that one. But I was excited because he jumped on the first pitch and fouled it hard. He was a little too quick. But off the bat for a split second, it looked like, oh man, might this be a magical moment? And it still was, even though he ended up striking out. What, oh, what kind of moment, Ben? Oh, what kind of moment? <laughs> I was going to try not to do a gift of the veggie this Why? time, but I guess I just did basically. Yeah, you just, just kind of did. Yeah, he was like, um, he's he's uh, like Schrodinger's pitch clock violation, like simultaneously the most and least likely person to suffer a pitch clock violation. Because if anyone's familiar with a pitch clock. <laughs> yeah. You know, right. but also what a moment. So, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, it was really nice. So, yeah, he actually, I listened to his post-game interview. He was interviewed on the field and- his parents were there and his brothers were there and uh, you could watch them and hear them during the broadcast. So that was nice. And he was thanking them after the game. And he was uh, talking about how, you know, anything is possible. The fact that Drew Maggi can make the majors finally, <laughs> anyone can do anything. And right. he said that when he heard that he was going to be getting into the game, he was kind of giving himself a pep talk about having a good at bad and, and slowing the game down, he actually said, which was funny because he then slowed down a little too much right. Right, <laughs> during the play. <laughs> But but still, but that was so great that it made me wonder whether there's any way to make this mandatory in a way, or at least open up the possibility for this to happen more often to have some sort of, again, like special dispensation yeah. roster exemption where 
you could have a program where when someone has been in the minors for 10 plus years, let's say, yeah. then there's some incentive to call them up and get them into a game. You know, you could yeah. call it like the, the gift of the Magi program or the you could call the, it that, Ben. The, 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 do ben. you believe in Magi program? I don't ben. know. Something name it <gasps> after him. But but like, uh, gosh, I don't know, like a like a minor league Drew Magi make a wish type of program for, for like veteran minor leaguers who've been bouncing around forever and who probably will never make the majors. And then you can give them the shot, give them that moment in the sun. Basically, I guess you could say, well, it doesn't count against your 26 player roster limit, right? Like you could just get a free spot, basically, if you have one of those guys in your system. And then you could call them up without any penalty or cost and give them a chance to have that kind of moment. Would, would, would that make sense? Might that make sense? I think that that sounds lovely. I mean, I, I don't want to... It's a tricky thing, right? Because when you're trying to... Not that you're trying to manufacture that moment, but when you're forcing it, y- yeah. you run the risk of it being a little a little bit patronizing. But, right. but also, it's lovely. I imagine that... Okay, Ben, I want to make sure my understanding is correct. My sense would be that the greatest, the the biggest gating factor to this would be the pension implications, mm. potentially, right? Because isn't it if you have even if you have one day, you don't get yeah. a lot, you don't right. get the full freight, right? There's a reason mm-hmm. that players reaching ten years of service is a big deal, and part of that is the pension vesting that comes with yeah. it, right? But you do get something if you yeah. appeared in the majors even one time. Although, is it if you are in a game or if it's just if you're on the roster? That's a good question. Yeah, I don't know the he was already on a roster. Right. So, but... per- right. so maybe maybe it doesn't um, matter in this particular instance, but could matter in others. But yeah, I think that that would be lovely. Yeah. Well, you could either be generous and just give them that <laughs> or well, yeah. I guess if they weren't going to make the majors anyway, you could have some kind of carve out or something like if you really want to be a miser and a stickler about it you could say well you get to go to the big leagues you just you don't get that but i wonder whether i guess one one obstacle obviously would be that some teams uh you know it is the big leagues and the games uh, count and matter and everything and also you know you'd be taking someone else's playing time although right. not their roster spot and some teams, uh, they'd be in a pennant race. Uh, the reason why I was thinking of it is because September rosters don't expand right. the way that they used to. Right. And I, I'm fine with that on the whole. I think it was uh, sort of silly when you had some teams with 40 guys and I hate other it. guys. Yeah. So the thing <laughs> is, though, that there are some major leaguers who do not make the majors now because uh, not as many September call-ups. Not that there's any shortage of newly minted major leaguers, as we have discussed. There seems to be more every year. So many, in fact. (laughs) Yeah, but some of those guys who who would get to come up in September, maybe when you're out of the race and you're just seeing what you have or you're sort of rewarding someone for that, they might not get that chance anymore. Now, if they were... On a contending team, I know the Pirates are off to a great start. They're a contending team, <laughs> but it's April. But right. if if the Pirates, uh, if this were late in the season, if uh, it were a team that were fighting for every win, then you might not be able to call that guy up or you might not 
want to call that guy up, even if he was kind of bumming around your system. So in that case, I guess you would have to work out some sort of loan program or, you know, when it, when it's like a, a late career minor league veteran, I mean, you could just, uh, you could work something out with another team that it's out of the race and would have the plate appearance to give to that person, the, the gift of the Magi. Do you believe in Magi? <laughs> honorary major leaguer, not honorary, actual major leaguer, but kind of a, an expedited experience accelerated program to to get them there when they might not get there otherwise. So I think, you know, you could like release them and have the other team sign them for a day or whatever. So I kind of like to see that. But uh, yeah, as you say, part of what makes it so special is that it is really hard to get there, obviously. Right. So, so if you do kind of build in some mechanism whereby you can always get there if you last there long enough or you're much more likely to get there, that it would not be quite as special, I suppose, if if this sort of thing were happening yeah. more often or if the player knew I only got there because of this right. yeah, special I yeah, program. I don't know what players would think of it. Right, yeah. I mean, I would think it'd still be kind of cool just, you know, to be in the show, just to, to right. get the major league experience for a day, even if there were some roster rule that helped expedite that i would i'd still want to do it right i mean you used to be able to say like oh he's in the baseball encyclopedia now right and now we talk about baseball reference i guess of course you're already on baseball reference but you have a major league page on baseball reference which is is different and important distinction i think that i'm trying to sort through what i think of of this because like on the one hand i think we can acknowledge that There are guys who deserve to be in the big leagues, probably, who don't end up making it, and guys who are not objectively like the most, one of the most talented guys, at least not for very long, um, who do make it, right? Like there is Mm -hmm. some wiggle there. Like I don't think that teams are always so perfect at talent evaluation that, you know, we we can say like, oh, well, yeah. everyone who deserves to be there is always going to get there. Like that's, right. that's almost certainly timing. not true. There's some luck. It, it depends. Right. Uh, you're on a certain roster and not another when a need exactly. arises. Yeah. Yeah. So like there's, so there's that piece of it. And I, I think that if you made the rules stringent enough, right, if you really are making it the, <laughs> really naming it after him. Like how many guys, yeah. it's not very many guys, right? Like that's just yeah. not going to be very many guys. And so I think that if you understand it as in part an acknowledgement of sort of persistence and, and fortitude in the face of a thing that many people would very reasonably be done with earlier in their lives, that's fine. Like that I don't know that that really takes anything away from the experience of it. I mean, I I imagine that players probably would have really strong opinions. They might not all be in alignment, but I imagine that their opinions on this would be like very firm. You know, if you gave them the opportunity, but you were like, but it doesn't count for pension stuff. Would it be then? Would it be the meatloaf award? You know, because do anything for, but you can't do that. Yeah. (laughs) Jumanji just uh, hit a ball about 100 miles per hour, but it was was caught in Uh, center field by James Outman. You know, we were talking about how maybe it'd be better if there were a a name swap and James Outman were a pitcher and and Battenfield were a position player, Peyton Battenfield. But it is nice when you look in game day and it says Jumanji flies out to center fielder James Outman. Yep. that that makes me happy. It is satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's nice to be like out to the Outman. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
All right. So that was nice. Happy that it happened. So since this has recently become a podcast and a platform for Meg's mascot opinions, there's one that a couple people have uh, asked you to share. It pertains to your team. And it's a Mariner's mascot, a short-lived Mariner's mascot named Spacey the Space Needle, (laughs) 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 which... uh, surfaced on Reddit the other day and uh, people were commenting on this uh, quick clip of Spacey the Space Needle in 1979 Mariner's mascot didn't last very long but you can imagine what Spacey looked like it looks like the Space Needle the famous building in Seattle and uh, (laughs) okay Ben saying you can imagine what it looked like and then seeing it I submit that no you cannot I submit that you gotta see it to be like Oh, (laughs) because it is as if they took, you know, they had to make it tall. We'll get into the stilts uh, Mm -hmm. in a moment here. But they were like, what do we take the the head of the Space Needle? And then we put a thing on top of it that in the grainy footage here looks like the Death Star. Like, um, there's that. And then we put him in a uniform, right? Because... How could we make the bottom of his body look like a, a building? Couldn't do it. Couldn't possibly just put him in a Mariner's uniform, you know? Mm-hmm. I kind of love Spacey. I have a, a a potentially unkind thing to say about Spacey, which is, like, is it possible that they just didn't get a very good stiltsman, you know? Yeah, What's a maybe. Stil- what is a stilt? Are you a stilt operator? Are you a, <laughs> a stilt driver? No. Um, You're hmm. stilted. I don't know. Yeah. But it's true that there's probably some skill, some technique to walking on stilts, especially with a, a space needle mask on your head. The The possibility of tipping over because you have like a weird high weight you know, I don't know what the um, the manufacturing technology was like in 1979, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had advancements since then. I don't know if Boeing was involved with this. You know, if it was at the time, like, things weren't going great for them. So I, I wonder if we, in the modern era, um, could employ um, technology and materials, potentially, like, from the space shuttle, mm-hmm. um, to, to make it very light. We could yeah. make it out of paper mache we have papier mache space needle head. What is the thing on top of his head? <laughs> I mean, like the thing on top of his head is like the, you know, the part of the space needle that you can go up in. And there's a restaurant yeah. up there, and they've made the floors clear now, Ben. And I don't like. I don't care. Oh no. Excuse me. I'm gonna do a swear. I don't care for that shit at all. No. <laughs> No. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, thank you. It's like, oh, it's expensive because it's for tourists. Fine. They can keep that. That's not for me. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. I read a little bit about Spacey. I was looking. There didn't seem to be a lot of contemporary coverage in <laughs> 1979. They were waiting for us, Ben. Yeah, the archivists. But in 1990, which is when Mariner Moose came in, the first Mariner's full-time yes. mascot, And I was looking at a a January 1990 article in the News Tribune, and there's a Mariners executive who's saying kids love mascots, and who better to decide what the mascot should be than the kids? So they were doing a a You Pick the Mascot contest that was open to fans who were 14 and younger, 
and there was a thousand dollar prize for the winning contestant. And this article says the Mariners never have had an official mascot, though one night in August 1979, they held a mascot for a night contest. On hand that evening was Spacey the Space Needle, Sam the Roller Skating Salmon, and a man. Wait, wait, it gets better. And a man dressed only in diapers who wished to be called the baby. (laughs) <laughs> and the who baby. crawled and who crawled all the way from left field to home plate <laughs> fans voting with their applause chose spacey <laughs> the baby what did the salmon look like do we have a picture of the salmon i, I don't know you can look up the, the roller skating the... salmon but i haven't Why seen a picture put... what what's it called what was the salmon called sam sam the roller Mariner skating salmon sam the roller <laughs> Skating. I love the baby because I don't even know what that has to do with Seattle or the Mariners. I'm I, like the salmon and the space needle. I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> so and I found a, a 1999 Seattle Times article that says in the 1979 mascot competition won by Spacey the Needle over the Bulgarian rabbit. A man showed up wearing only a diaper and calling himself the baby. Oh, and so this is why the baby. And, and everyone was like, yeah, keep that guy around. <laughs> we had all the mascots run or ride or skate or do their thing from the left field tunnel to the plate, recalled Randy Adamic, now Seattle Vice President of Communications. The baby crawled. When he stood up at home, his hands and knees were all bloody. Oh. I think we gave him second place for his pain. So, I'm sorry. <laughs> a bloody so there, baby. There what a mascot. There was a giant bloody baby. And they were <laughs> yes. like, for the kids. You know, for the kids, for the yep. kids. Yep. Yep. And here's a, a 1990 article, Seattle Times, also that says uh, the Mariners threw a mascot contest, which produced the Moose's fleeting forerunner, Spacey the Needle. He was an architectural wonder on stilts with a replica of the top of the Space Needle on his head. The only thing was a Space Needle had a few built in limitations as a mascot, mobility being chief among them. Being on stilts, there was only so much he could do, Adamic said. Spacey entertained at several games and took his retirement. I think that they maybe need a, a better stilts practitioner, a better... Yeah. Certified stilts operator. Stil, stil, stilts operator. I don't want to say stiltsman because it could be, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. there's there's no Stilt gender person. requirement around stilting. around. Nope. <laughs> yeah, haven't the Savannah Bananas have done pitchers and hitters on stilts? Yeah, which I don't think is a good idea, but you're doing a lot more action than just like right. walking around, you know? Yeah, if you can pull that off, I would think mascotting on stilts would be possible. And yeah, you might be limited in certain ways, but you'd also be enabled in certain ways to do things that uh, more vertically challenged mascots could not. So <sighs> I would like it. It'd be a good look. I think that another perhaps underrated. Um, issue for uh stilty for spacey they should call him stilty no that's bad they should call but spacey like implies a you know a you know a blah, 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 you know yeah, like, a, blah, 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 about you you know you right. gotta you're forgetful you're absent-minded you're yeah. not you're operating in an ethereal plane you know you gotta yeah. be grounded in because mm-hmm. you're a tall building and if you're not grounded you're gonna fall over and it's gonna be bad right so one issue that I could foresee is like how tall was Spacey actually? Like what was the Yeah, it, height? it looks I mean, just from the footage here, it, it looks like it Spacey's towering over the umpires by at yeah. least a few feet, right? So I wonder if in in the ballpark if there might be places where 
you know, Spacey could not go. Could mm. not go for because, like, how would one traverse? Right. How Just does like Spacey get? Yeah, it get in an elevator. Spacey'd have to come down <laughs> off Spacey's stilts, and then you'd have to have a special Spacey elevator. That sounds funny um, because you couldn't, you wouldn't want to horrify the children, shatter the illusion that Spacey mm-hmm. is not, in fact, a giant, right? Yeah, and you can't so have Spacey take off the the helmet, the mask to no. get into an elevator or duck under a <laughs> ceiling or something. Yeah, I may have shared this story before, so I apologize for repeating myself, which bothers some. But um, I know someone who worked for the team, like in game day operations, and their job was to be like the moose chaperone because they're. <laughs> There are multiple mooses. There mm-hmm. are at least two. And they could not cross paths <laughs> because it would be bad for the children, Ben. Yeah. We're trying to create a world here, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. So um, so I, I think that you would need, first of all, you'd need at least two people who are really good on stilts. You would need space metal to make the, the head. Um, and then getting Spacey through the ballpark feels like it would be a tremendous challenge. And, like, there's no padding on Spacey, right? And you're at a, a height. So if you fall, you're going to hurt yourself, you know? Mm-hmm. And and as we discussed when we were talking about Dinger being tackled, which, again, we are opposed to mascot assault or opposed to assault of any mm-hmm. kind, you know, there is, like, a, a safety issue here that I don't want to downplay just because the person they had in the stilts might have been a bad stilts um <laughs> Stilt writer. Stilt writer? No, I'm going to keep working, chopping it. I'll find it. <laughs> yeah, right. If you were dancing on the dugout as Spacey and you fell, then not only are you falling from some height, but you're falling from the stilts as well. Right. So th- that could be problematic. Right, yeah. yeah. So I don't know. It it might need some workshopping, but I think that what we can all agree about is that, you know, if Spacey is occupying a take it or leave it kind of category in terms of the mascots that we have um, at one end in terms of bring it back right now. I need to see it. The salmon on roller skates, because again, what? (laughs) And then at the other end is the bloody baby, which, you know, can just remain in the, in the backwaters of history as far as I'm concerned. Yes, please. Yeah. Well, we're gradually transitioning into just a full-time mascot, podcast just the uh, horniness and mascots we're just <laughs> the the furry market we're we just talk- cornering the, the furry baseball fan market here oh gradually. no no we're not crossing no we're not we're not crossing those wires not necessarily not we're explicitly. not always crossing those wires we are occasionally <laughs> wondering if yeah. there is a desire on the part of others to cross that particular yes. set of wires but we are not ourselves we don't share the desire not that there's anything wrong with that right yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right so i did want to talk to you about an epidemic that is happening across the sport right now is it or injuries? at the major well yeah there is that we have talked about that i don't know what more to say other than stop with the injuries yeah, stop, stop getting hurt every darn day that so robbie ray's out for the season now yeah and it's like two or three guys seem to leave a start every, every night yeah, every night it's, Kenta Maeda, Herman Marquez, so each yeah. of them recently returned from injuries of their own, Taiwan Walker, and it's always like a forearm or a right. tricep or something and a flexor tendon, and you're always just worried that it's going to turn into Tommy John or at least with Robbie Ray, just a 
flexor surgery that's going to cost them the entire season. It's the worst. Just just uh, stop. I don't know how to stop other than I guess my proposed solution for everything is still just limiting the number of pitchers on the active roster, which I hope would make guys throw max effort less often and might lead to fewer injuries. But I don't have a, a panacea for this. It's just uh, really bad every day when someone else goes down. It's a problem. Like, I don't know that if we were to wrap them, like in bubble wrap, if it would help. Maybe we should put them on stilts. Mascots maybe should be wrapped in bubble wrap. I mean, maybe yeah. if Spacey, the Space Needle, were in bubble wrap, then that would solve the problem of plummeting from a great height. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe. I still think you could break stuff, though. Yeah. Yeah. So that was not the epidemic. That no. is actually a, a more serious <laughs> epidemic. I don't have a solution for that one. And no. it's uh, it's bad. But. There's also an epidemic of catcher's interferences. Yeah. So many catcher's interferences yeah. have been happening this year. And uh, we've done the stat blast already this week, but uh, this is stat blasty, I guess. I just I looked up how many catcher's interferences there have been each season going back a ways. And there are so many so more. Many catcher's interferences yeah. than there used to be. Interference I? No. Can I just say catcher's interference? Do I have to pluralize it? I don't know. Catcher's I have to figure it out because it's happening so much more often now that I have to get the terminology down. So there have been 26 instances of catcher interference so yeah, far this season. instances of catcher interference. I think that that's the best way to say it, even though it's clunky. Yeah, it doesn't really flow that well. But no. 26 times it's happened this season. As recently as 2014, there were fewer than that in the entire season. In 2014, wow. there were 23 instances of catcher interference. There have been 26 already this season. 2014 is not that long ago. Same number of teams, same number of games. We're 15% of the way through the regular season, and we've already exceeded the number of, of catcher's interferences that there were in 2014 and 2013 and 2012, right? I, it's unbelievable how much yeah. it's skyrocketed. Now, it's still quite rare in the grand scheme of things. I don't know that anyone else is like bemoaning the, the rise in catcher's interferences, but there have been so many more. So like this is uh, if we were to to stay on this pace and I don't know whether we will, but but right now we're on pace for like 170 catcher's interference calls. <laughs> There's another way I could say it. There you this... go. That's better. That's smoother. <laughs> we're going to, by the end of this pod, we're going to have this nut cracked. And we'll figure out the stilts thing too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so 170 would be the pace that, that we're on right now. There were 74 last season. That was a record. There were 62 in 2021. That was a record. There were 61 in 2019. That was a record. Forget about 2020, although there were a lot that season of, on on pace for a lot that season. But really, like it's gone up so much where it was, you know, just looking from like 1998, the first 30 team season, there were 23 that year. So it was like kind of flat, roughly like there were the same number in 1998 and 2014. And it, it fluctuated. Like in 2002, there were nine. 
And in 2010, there were 28, but, you know, it, it didn't go above 28. And then suddenly 2015, 33, 2016, 41, 2017, 43, 2018, 41, 2019, 61, and then 62 and 74 last year and, and on pace for many more this season. So even if we were to stay on the current pace and, and have 170, I mean, it's, it's still not that many like it's it's right now happening once every 14 games or so which is you know 28 or 29 team games to each catcher interference so it's basically happening like five or six times per season per team that's the pace we're on right now so yeah i don't know that that's so terrible or that anyone would particularly care but it it is much more noticeable at least and we've had some games there was like a red sox angels game where there were three in one game and two in one inning yeah and i know two in one inning happened last year also so they're clustering and and they're becoming more noticeable and it's really a rapid rise just over the past several years. And I think we could talk about why it's happening, but it is clearly happening. And it's uh, one of the most striking trends if you care about odd little rules and minutiae. Okay. So the the ridiculous answer is their hands have all gotten bigger, right? Or their gloves <laughs> have all gotten bigger. There's a uh, an epidemic. The hidden injury epidemic is uh, big hands, like swollen <laughs> hands, like uncomfortable, um, like digit compression. Yeah. Well, you know some of them when, might have swollen hands after the catch after, occurs because yeah. they get hit by a bat. You know how when you live in Arizona, you have two states of being, you either constantly have to pee or you always have like a mild dehydration headache. It's like you, there's mm-hmm. very little time spent comfortably in between those two. And when you're in the dehydration headache mold, at least for me, it's like you get the, you get kind of puffy fingies, you get puffy digits. So, so the silly answer is, uh, that they like have bigger hands, you know, and it has Mm -hmm. led to them. But I wonder if what we are witnessing is, are they being instructed to move forward Mm -hmm. in the box from, to try to optimize pitching? Because like I have heard tell Ben, Mm -hmm. um, of catchers who like have seen dips in their framing numbers and, uh, and they've been like, Hey, well, why am I bad at this all of a sudden? And their teams will be like, Oh, you're, you're set up too far or too close. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so they reposition them, you know? And so uh, like, are they being pushed forward yes. some amount? I think so. Yeah. And could we figure that out with the stat cast data? It, it, not if publicly, we, if but we had it, if we had right. it, I, this is, this is actually my answer to the data that I want the most is, mm-hmm. is catchers positioning in the end you know, I want really precise batter box positioning too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. I I would like to know that too. Yeah, and I don't know that that data has uh, existed for that long, and I'm probably not. It, it hasn't been tracked really, but there is at least the possibility to figure that out. And of course, there have been various biomechanics data providers that predated Statcast doing that kind of stuff. So I, I might actually inquire and see if I can get any info on that because I I have asked for that sort of information on batter position before as pertains to hit by pitches, but or ask about. About the big hands. Well, yeah, that too. Obviously, yeah. I don't. I would think that probably with Hawkeye, we could track hand swollen size the now these days. You yeah. know, they're, yeah. they're measuring all the digits. So, right. I would think though that if we could quantify that, that we would see that catchers have shifted forward. I think this is largely an artifact of framing. I, I think. Yeah. 
the timing is suggestive, right? When framing really caught on, when teams started stressing it and paying attention to it, that's when these numbers started to creep up, especially once catchers went to the the one knee stance predominantly, which happened several years ago. And I wrote about that trend at the time. Tyler Flowers was really one of the, the popularizers of that. And now it's it's rare to see a catcher not on the one knee stance it looks like old school there are only a few holdouts at this point you know like wilson Contreras and and some others who maybe want to be more mobile back there and be able to throw and back pick they might not do it but almost everyone else has switched to that and catchers are being taught to do that now because framing a lot of framing is about framing the low strike and receiving the low strike there are a lot of strikes down there and you know if you can stop the the pitch from falling then or appearing appear to have stopped the pitch from falling then that can help you nab those low strikes that's where uh, catchers make the biggest difference receiving wise and i think that's what's happening here obviously if like a pitch is is falling the longer you let it travel the more it will fall right and right. so the last thing that the umpire sees of course the umpire's view might be somewhat obscured but the last thing the umpire sees is is when the ball goes into the mitt or thereabouts and so the farther forward you can catch it the higher it will be the closer right. it will be to a strike or look like it was closer to a strike. So I think that's what's happening. I think catchers are reaching forward and uh, they're they're getting burned by that now and then. And I think what we've seen this season with an even further rise, I wonder whether that is resulting from the, the new stolen base rules and, right. and the restriction on pickoff attempts. And now catchers are probably extra antsy back there. And yes. they're thinking, I, I got to be ready to throw and I want to get a couple inches closer to second base to compensate for second base being a couple inches closer to first base, right? And and they're kind of jumping out of their shoes and, and maybe in their haste or their anxiety or urgency to be ready to throw, but also be thrame, framing like there there's a lot of demands on catchers right now. And I would imagine that this is stemming from that. So big uptick back when people started paying attention to framing, another big uptick when everyone went to the one knee stance, and now another big uptick perhaps this season as a result of in response to the new stolen base stuff. So I, I think that's why it's happening. So I don't know how it would stop, right? Because like all the incentives seem to be pushing catchers to do this other than the fact that you do get penalized by allowing a, a batter to reach base uh, if there's a catcher's interference call. So all the trends are kind of pushing it up, though, unless we go to robot umps, uh, not even a challenge system or something, or something else changes with the running game. It seems like catcher's interferences might be here to stay or become even more common. Cases of catcher's interference. <laughs> yeah, we need to so, see. So, it sounds like a disease or something. Yeah, it yeah. does. <laughs> like you gotta, you gotta. Well, blockage. I said it was an epidemic, so yeah. yeah you gotta. Oh, see, I was gonna say a rash of catcher's interference, and that seems <laughs> even worse. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I uh, or they uh, mismanufactured all the gloves. You know, yeah. so they're bigger. And, that could um, be alternative explanation, equally yeah. plausible. Yeah. <laughs> mm, I think that the other explanation is better. I have greater confidence in its power yeah. to explain. The, there's some instances where 
it almost seems intentional on the batter's part, or at least you could say that the batter was not actually obstructed or interfered with or impaired in any way, because sometimes the bat will make contact with the glove like after the pitch has already gone by, you know, and there is actually a case a couple of years ago where Clayton Kershaw was kind of miffed at Jerickson Profar because it appeared that perhaps Profar had sort of intentionally elicited a catcher's interference call on a, a pitch that was like already by him and he took kind of a weird like downward choppy swing and Kershaw was like you know they might need to revisit this because you could you know I mean there have been players like uh, Jeff Sullivan was semi-obsessed with yes. catcher's interference and particularly with Jac- Jacoby Ellsbury who yeah. is the all-time leader who passed Pete Rose who had many 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 thousands more plate appearances than Jacoby Ellsbury did and Ellsbury was the catcher's interference king and he had like 12 of them in one season and he ended up with 31 and then recently Nick Senzel was uh, eliciting a lot of catcher's interference calls so you can kind of work it into your game and not necessarily do it intentionally but perhaps sometimes do it intentionally so there are some cases where it's uh, kind of cheaper at least like there wasn't actual interference but I I do understand why you have to have the rule because yes. if you didn't have any penalty or costs associated with that, then the catcher could just be constantly interfering with the swing. I mean, they might hurt themselves, but you could be throwing your glove into the bat path every time, right? right. So there has to be some rule about this. Right. But it's uh, it's just it's being triggered so much more often. Yeah. That I just I wonder whether we will continue to see the occurrences rise. Yeah, I I am fascinated by it because it it seems like it it could involve some amount of skill. Although I think you'd probably just want I mean like I don't know, maybe you're just happy to get on base, but I think you'd still want like a clean finish and swing so that you can do other stuff besides just take yeah. a free base on catcher's interference. Right. So even if it is a skill, I don't know that there's often a ton of incentive to to deploy that skill. I mean, I'm sure there might be specific instances where it's like, oh, well, I have this skill and the bases are juiced. Mm -hmm. So I shall be interfered with. Also like interfered with. I don't know. It's just such a, I don't know. (laughs) I find that way of describing it to be kind of funny. So I don't know. It's it's an error. And I find it kind of deflating when it happens because there's often a moment of confusion because you don't. There's almost always a moment of confusion. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's very obvious, but often it's just a nick and you can't really see it until you slow it down and see the replay. So there's just this moment of like, what? Everyone just suddenly stopped doing what they were doing and now the guy's going to first base. Did he get hit or something? Oh, I see. Catcher's interference. Right. So there's always a moment of confusion. And then it's it's sort of an unsatisfying resolution to the plate parents in my mind. I I like framing, obviously. We enjoy framing. I don't particularly enjoy this byproduct of it, which it just feels unfulfilling. It's like we were watching the the pitcher versus batter confrontation, and sure, the catcher is a third party in that, and the umpire is a fourth party in that, but still, we want to see them settle their differences here, and we didn't actually (laughs) get to see it because the catcher's glove just crept in and said, actually, what if this plate appearance were over now? So we just skipped it and went to the next one. And you don't get credit for it in on-base percentage, 
which you don't with any other kind right. of error, so it's consistent. But that is potentially a weakness too, because uh, even reached on error, a regular one, you should probably get credit for that, or at least it's certainly a skill that some players are able to reach on error more often because they're fast or they hit the ball on the ground or they pull their grounders and they're able to to put pressure on the defense and beat those out. So there is some skill to that. Like there's uh, clearly some players are able to reach on error more often over time than others. And that is also the case with catcher's interference. So it also feels like maybe the batter should get a little credit for that, but also, it's kind of dinky, and it's just, it's, it's, it's not fun. It's not fun. Dinky. So I don't really want to see this happen as yeah. often as it, it has been happening. It's not a huge problem, but no. you know, every time it happens, and especially when we see a few in a short span of time, it's like, this used to be really rare. I mean, yeah. I don't know whether it was always tracked and reported accurately, but if you look back at really long ago seasons on baseball reference, it's just, it's like a handful or maybe a couple were happening per season. Obviously, right. fewer teams, fewer games, but it was an extremely rare occurrence. And yes. Now it's merely not, quite rare, but <laughs> yeah, not extremely yeah. rare, still rare, but mm-hmm. you know, like, um, you know, like there's less pink in, in the meat as it were. Yes. Um, yeah, I I think that it is made moderately better by the fact that in theory you could clarify more quickly via the umps being mic'd up like what had just happened. Like they mm-hmm. should say, "That's the catcher's interference." Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. catcher's interference. I do wonder if catchers like get in their own heads about it, you know? Um yeah. like do you get worried that you're too close then do you set up too far back? Right. Yeah. yeah. And and also, I wonder whether we're seeing more catchers get hit on backswings, yeah. which the penalty to that is you just got hit by a bat. Right. <laughs> so, so that's not great. I, I don't it's not like we've seen so many injuries all of a sudden from catchers. Right. They're always going to get hit by foul tips and everything. But if there are more catchers interference calls, there are probably also more cases of catchers getting nicked on backswings, too. And right. It's just another bruise to add to catchers' bodies, but it it can't be great. So if I were a catcher, which, again, I wouldn't be, despite my admiration for catchers and my appreciation of the position, part of that appreciation stems from just how little I would want to do that job. (laughs) So so I would definitely, it would be in my head, I mean— uh, sure, I'd want to get my pitcher extra strikes, but also I really would not want to get hit by a bat at any point in the swing. So I would be quite wary. So I mean, imagine how many close calls and near misses there are if there are this many contacts. So if I got hit, I would learn my lesson from that and I would scooch back a bit, but that I would not do well on my framing metrics and that would upset me too. It's a real conundrum. It's a mm-hmm. real, because, you know, you just have to be able to, wipe it. I I continue um to to appreciate like the little seemingly impossible things that baseball players do and I think the one that I have been the most in awe of lately which perhaps speaks to my own ambient level of anxiety is just the ability to like let it go and not think about it again. Mm-hmm. I sit in awe and also envy 
Yeah, me too. <laughs> Mamas don't let your babies grow up to be catchers, I guess. Someone's got to catch, so some babies have to become catchers. Yeah. I don't want to think about babies now because now I'm just thinking about the about Mariners. Giant, <laughs> yes, got the giant, bloody adult baby. <laughs> no. Why? Why? Someone has to contact the person who played the baby and ask why. What were they thinking? Ugh, disturbing. Anyway. <sighs> Another pitch-related intrigue here, there was a, a video that went around also on Reddit that is basically a, it's shot by a Japanese fan of the Angels dugout the other day during the Angels A's game on April 25th when Jose Suarez was pitching for the Angels and you can see Shohei Otani pick up on Suarez's pitch tipping and then relay that information first to the pitching coach and then to Phil Nevin, the manager, and then Nevin pulls Suarez aside and gets him to stop doing the tipping that he was doing. So it's it's kind of cool to see it develop and shape up, and we don't usually get footage of the dugout constantly during games, but because there's a big Otani fan there who just wanted Otani to always be on camera, we got this little insight here. And it's interesting because I'm always really fascinated by pitch tipping and pitch tipping rumors because I, I feel like often it's kind of overblown. Yeah. Like maybe there wasn't actually pitch tipping happening or if there was, maybe it didn't make as big a difference as people believe that it did. But it's always hard to tell. And in this case, you can see it being recognized and corrected in real time, which is kind of cool. And Again, tiny sample, not necessarily meaningful, but interesting, suggestive in the first to third innings against the A's. While Suarez was doing this, he gave up eight hits and a walk and five home runs. And then he went back out for the fourth and fifth, having changed his setup. It, it was like his glove setup. You know, he was like holding it higher or lower or whatever, depending gotcha. on the pitch type. Yeah. And in the fourth and fifth innings, he gave up no hits. And one walk and no damage was done. So, again, correlation, not causation. I don't know for sure that he was, like, eminently hittable and homerable against while he was pitching and then almost unhittable when he was not tipping. Did I say pitching? Tipping, I meant. Tipping. But I wonder, though, how often this kind of thing happens. I imagine it's happening pretty constantly and we just uh, don't have the footage where we can kind of track it in real time. Yeah. Also, some people were sort of slagging off the Angels coaching staff and saying that it's kind of embarrassing that they didn't pick up on this and that Otani did it, right? And there have been some other instances of, of this too. Jose Suarez, I, I think there was a pitch tipping issue with him like four years ago, like 2019, when Brad, Brad Osmus was the Angels manager and they talked about correcting that back then. And there have also been some cases, there was one, I think it was last season, where Mike Trout appeared to pick up on a pitch tipping issue and he was like gesturing almost in an irritated way from center field about this happening. Was and that was that related to pitch tipping or that was, walking that, the base? That, <laughs> that was separate. Yeah, walking zone yeah those terrible. were separate. Those yes, two different <laughs> instances of him being yes. kind of annoyed. Okay, <laughs> yeah, but but after this game, Suarez uh, said he was told that he was tipping pitches. After the third, he changed his glove placement, and the results uh, differed. And Nevin said that they think the pitch tipping issue that was identified will help Suarez be better. So. 
I was just thinking, I mean, A, I wonder just how often this happens. It's it's kind of funny when you think about it that you would be varying your glove location just unconsciously, yeah. depending on the pitch type, you yeah. know, like makes me wonder what other things, uh, what do we tip in real life that there are no implications of that whatsoever. But if you I think were that's to- that's the start of a true crime podcast, Ben. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But our tells or our, our ticks or our mannerisms or gestures yeah. that we do, I mean, that unless you're on a major league mound or at the poker table, <laughs> yeah. it just, it doesn't matter. But we're probably all doing that constantly and probably much more often than major league pitchers who have been conditioned not to do it. Right. But it, it's funny that they do it even unconsciously. But also, yeah. I feel like, and look, I don't know that the Angels coaching staff is particularly good or great or well-qualified or whatever, but I kind of think that if Trout and Otani are the ones picking up on that, that's not necessarily an indictment yeah. that you didn't because uh, these are probably the two best players yeah. in baseball. I mean, they are yeah. like, they are baseball savants, yes. the humans, not the website, but yeah. like, of course they would see it, you know, like they're geniuses, right? So, I mean, if they're almost extra coaches in that way, then that's great. Now, granted, I think probably like everyone in the dugout and on the bench is like constantly trying to pick up on on tipping and signs and everything, right? So probably everyone's doing that and people who aren't in the game and, and people who are coaches, maybe they're sort of explicitly supposed to do it or they have more time or mental bandwidth to do it. So perhaps they should be picking up on it more quickly than players and they're veterans and they're experienced and they're wily and they should be looking for all of that. But also... Otani and Trout, like they're they're masters of baseball, you know, like if they're picking up on something, it wouldn't be surprising to me if they saw it before even someone whose job it was to do that because they're just uh, ultra skilled at everything. So why would they not be ultra skilled at that, too? Right. I don't think that it necessarily I don't I don't know that, like you said, like they might be garbage as a coaching staff. I don't know. I'm not saying that they are. I just don't think that this necessarily points one way or the other yeah. um, to to that. Must be so weird. Like a camera just on the dugout because you're in it all the time. Man, mm-hmm. yeah. I hate to, I would, you know, and he's in this weird position. I was thinking about this the other day because my, my stepmom found a, a reel from an old late night episode where like Matt Harvey went around. This is when he was still a Met and, you know, like Matt Harvey. And he went around and asked uh, New Yorkers, like who was their favorite Met? And of course, a number of them said Matt Harvey. And then they talked about Matt Harvey. And then a couple of them were like, you know, ripping on Matt Harvey because they didn't realize it was him. And, Mm -hmm. and I was like, this is the perfect level of fame because um, being famous seems terrible to me. And um, I think that for 99% of baseball players, that's true. And then there's Otani, like Mm -hmm. he, even as a baseball player, incapable of being anonymous in like a public space. Like if you saw that guy, you'd be like, Oh, that's true. (laughs) That man's a professional athlete, you know? Mm -hmm. Yep. Anyway. Yeah. We've talked about the, the NPB Otani cam on some Japanese broadcasts where the camera's just always been on Otani at all times. Cause that's why people are tuning in. How many times in a season do you think he picks his nose? Cause like he does it at least a couple (laughs) of times. He's human, you know? Yeah. I, you know, I don't know that I've, remember him doing that and i've certainly seen enough oh, gifts of, of shohei otani oh, in my ben. day doing things in the dugout i mean well, who would, but why would someone gift that because you're a fan of otani if you're watching the otani cam maybe too much uh, of a fan i think that would get gifts yeah. if otani were very obviously picking and flicking or 
I didn't say anything about flicking. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I wondered what would happen after the pick. Is there mm. flicking or is there ingestion or, or what? Oh. But I I think that would probably wipe get. it off on yourself. Sure. Yeah. There's another option. That's true. Yeah. But I, I think, I mean, everything he does, because he's so expressive and, right. and kind of charismatic and he's always uh, being funny or amusing or playing pranks or joking right. or something in the dugout. So I, I think given the number of eyeballs on him and just the the GIF economy when it comes to Shohei Otani, yeah. that if, if he were picking, that we would probably we would see know. it. And, and that, I don't recall seeing it, but that, it may have happened. That's yeah. probably true. But yeah, I, I have sympathy for, like as a person who has... Um, uh, I'm bad at poker because I have a very expressive face. Um, mm. And I've thought a lot about in the last, you know, couple of years as people have talked about, you know, being like a, a an office worker who maybe has to go back into work in person, um, you know, after having spent some portion of the pandemic working from home, just being like, oh, I, I am so grateful that I don't have to do that because I imagine that there were a number of people who went back to work and then like – had to readjust their face (laughs) 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 to being, you know, and and I don't say that like I'm constantly mad at my coworkers or anything like that, but we all have our little annoyances at work, right? And Mm -hmm. I have the great luxury of just letting, it can just wash over me and no one, no one's the wiser. And then I can hopefully present myself in a kind way and a not annoyed way. I'm sure I don't succeed at that always, but you know, I don't, nobody's looking at my face being like that Meg, she's got feelings, you know? Mm -hmm. So I would hate to, I'd be a bad pitcher just for this reason though. No other reason. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. This was actually April 24th, not the 25th. And that was uh, the game that the angels ended up losing 11 to 10 in extras. And so I guess that was, uh, Probably like he almost he almost saved them. I guess Otani almost uh, got them a win there just by curtailing the pitch tipping. Perhaps if if we could somehow quantify your yeah. pitch tipping war, just uh, yeah. from some expert pitch tipper on the bench. Value, what is his yeah, value add? Right, saving his pitchers' runs constantly by perceiving their pitch tipping and being able to tell them. But you would think that. Otani, as both a pitcher and a hitter, in addition to everything else he's great at, he'd probably be great at picking up on pitch tipping too, right? Because not only, I mean, he pitches, so he has the potential to tip pitches himself and has to police himself for possible pitch tips. Right. And then also has the experience of being a hitter and trying to pick up on other people's pitch tips. So he has like... He's been on both sides of it. I mean, it's uh, it's like you you hire you know some some hacker to be like a a white hat hacker to to proof your defenses against the bad hackers because uh, they have hacked and they know how to find the holes in in your defenses, right? So Otani's uh, kind of like that. He's been on both sides of it. He knows how to pick up on on pitch tips and also how to stop it and prevent it in himself. So you would think that. In addition to everything else, he'd be also extra skilled at that. So here's some evidence that that is the case. You would. One thing I wanted to mention before we end, Jordan Walker was optioned, which uh, I guess probably would come as a, a shock to some people who remember how he started out, right? So he started out with a, a very long hitting streak. He got hits in each of his first 12 games, which was not historic territory, but coming up on historic territory. It was historic for a player as young as Jordan Walker is. And so he started off great and just going gangbusters. And it seemed like, okay, he's uh, hitting the ground running. There's not going to be a big adjustment period. 
And then just uh, what, nine games, I guess, after the hitting streak ended or eight, maybe he is uh, back in the minors. So kind of a, a quick comeuppance, but it's interesting because obviously like he kind of forced his way onto that roster by hitting extremely well in spring training and just looking big league ready. I don't think it was initially the plan for him to be on the big league roster, right. but he just he forced the issue and he yeah. pushed his way onto the roster. And initially it looked like this was a great decision yeah. and uh, it's going to be just nothing but sunshine and rainbows all the way. Now, over the last few games of the hitting streak, at least, he was getting one hit a game. And, right. you know, sometimes you have hitting streaks where you're not actually hitting that well, right? Because right. you're just getting like a single a game for a while. And that's uh, not that great, even though it extends the hitting streak. If we just divide his 20-game sample in the majors into two... Well, over his, uh, or or I guess if we want to make it even more extreme and cherry pick, then we could do his first nine games versus his last 11. So his first nine games, he had a 994 OPS. And then his last most recent 11 games, he had a 475 OPS. And he struck out 13 times and walked twice. And I am always fascinated by the idea of like the book on, on hitters, yeah. you know, and I probably got a stat blast about this at some point because I always just wonder how pervasive that phenomenon of the book is where a hitter comes up and initially they're just feasting on pitchers challenging them and just uh, throwing fastballs and we don't know who this kid is and we're going to make him prove it. Or at least in the past, like, we just really don't know who this kid is. <laughs> like, right. we've never heard of him. We have no scouting report. We have no data to go on. So until we develop our own book on him, then we'll just go with the generic book and maybe he'll be able to take advantage of that. So I wonder if you were to study this, and maybe I will, whether you would see that the first, you know, X plate appearances of rookies' major league careers on average are better than their next why played appearances, right? Like whether there typically is a correction or whether that is partly a myth and that hitters actually do just kind of constantly get better with age and experience or, or whether there typically is an adjustment period. Because there isn't always, you know, right. some guys, there's no book. I mean, there's there's no hole to exploit and they're just good from the get-go, basically. They just gradually get better. Whereas other guys, they have some huge hole or flaw exposed. And I'm not saying that's what happened with Jordan Walker. Like, he might have been okay. But obviously, he he cooled off. And if you look at how pitchers were pitching him, at least just with pitch types, you know, very simply, like, if you graph kind of a 10-game running average of, like, four-seam fastball percentage and slider percentage – the four-seam fastball percentage goes way down, the slider percentage goes way up. So maybe they were just like, let's see if he can hit breaking balls. So at least at first, maybe he couldn't. I also wonder whether that book effect would be more pronounced now because information circulates quickly around the league or less pronounced than it used to be because the information circulates instantaneously when you get to the big leagues. There's already a book. There's already a scouting report if you want one. But between that and him hitting a lot of ground balls and also having issues in the outfield, they yeah. they sent him down. That's, I guess, probably the bigger issue for now. Yes. <laughs> and I think, like, he is in a – he he was in a spot because 
on the one hand, like if you're going to play him in the outfield, it has to get better than it's been. Like we had a piece on um, that Alex Isert wrote earlier this week, this week before he was sent down about sort of the situation in the outfields there. And I have watched some of the Cardinals, but I don't watch them as much as like a Cardinals fan does. So I like asked Ben Clemens, I was like, so what's your take on this? Just because I was curious um, as I was editing it, like what, you know, as someone who watches them often and he was like, yeah, he should be sent down. Cause the, the defense is a problem and not just in a, we're in a small defensive sample and the numbers can be kind of weird, you know, especially mm-hmm. in such uh, limited attempts. Um, you know, it seems like he's struggling there and it would be, that would be one thing if there weren't other guys um, on the roster, both competing for outfield space, but then also the DH spot. Like, I think that one of the important numbers in determining Walker being up or down isn't one of his. It's the fact that, like, Nolan Gorman has a 160 WRC plus. Mm -hmm. So they can't put him at DH and take at bats away from Gorman. They want Gorman's bat in the lineup. So then, you know, once Newbar comes back from being hurt, like, what do you do? You have this log jam that he, like you said, kind of beat, you know, hit his way through in spring. But you still have, you know, Newt Bar, and you still have Tyler O'Neill, and you yeah. still have Burleson, and yeah. you have and Dylan, Dylan Carlson. Carlson. Yeah. And, <laughs> right. So they have all these guys, and you're right that he had cooled off, and it wasn't what it had looked like in the beginning. But I think that if he either had an obvious place to be played um, or was able to, you know, DH, that they would probably let him sort some of that stuff out at the big league level, but they just have this weird configuration. Now, you might say, is it better for him to try to sort that stuff out in the minors? I mean, if he's going to get consistent playing time, then then probably, you know. I don't know. It's interesting, like, how I I was reflecting on how I reacted to this because – it didn't strike me as a, a wild decision, maybe in part because I just edited that piece, but and had sort of thought about what he really looked like as a defender more than I would have previously. But, you know, the Cardinals, they tend to promote guys when they think they're ready. Like, they don't mm-hmm. really play service time games. And yeah. so this is part of the benefit of not doing that is that my initial gut instinct was not that he was being like fooled with, right? But that mm-hmm. they really have something they want him to work on. Now, I think if you want to have a conversation about whether that's the right developmental environment versus just doing it in the big leagues, like that's a fine conversation to have. But I was like, oh, right. Like this is what happens when you have a reputation for and seemingly act often in good faith with your guys is that like, I'm more inclined to believe that there's an honest assessment here that stuff needs to be worked on rather than just like, oh, they're, they're trying to, you know, game him right. or something. Yeah, right. Sometimes it's kind of the the cliched line like, oh, we need to send him down to work on his defense, right? But in this case, he really does have to work on his defense. Yeah. yeah. And because, yeah, they gave him the shot, then you kind of know that's good faith. And and he's a fairly recently converted outfielder. Right, I mean, he yeah. He was a third baseman, and hey, they have Nolan Arenado, and that's right. great. <laughs> but also it means that he has had to move, and there's an adjustment period there. And he's so. a really young guy. You know, he's mm-hmm. not even 21 yet. So mm-hmm. yeah. I I think that the the future is still very bright for Jordan Walker, oh, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. um, and that— this is this is this will be fine. It'll be fine. 
I yep. suspect. Like, I don't think that anyone is sitting here being like, oh, we got to reevaluate Jordan Walker. But oh, um, yeah. I think he'll be back in, I don't know whether it'll be weeks or months, but you don't want someone like him probably to be sitting in the bench. Uh, if you want them to work on defense, like right. they got to get regular reps. And, yep. and probably being in the minors, being at AAA is probably just as beneficial when it comes to working on your defense as being in the big leagues, or it's probably not as big a difference as, say, the stuff. Like, if what you had to work on was hitting major league quality pitching, that could be a difficult thing to do when you're not in the major leagues, right? But if what you have to do is get better at fielding, then probably you could do that just as well at AAA. I mean, there may be fewer batted balls hit really hard or something, but like generally it's it's more or less the same to play the outfield in AAA versus uh, MLB in a lot of important ways. So I would think that he could get good just as well there as in St. Louis. And certainly if he's going to be playing, you know, every two or three days in St. Louis, as opposed to starting every day, that it's probably beneficial to send him down again, assuming he won't get demoralized by that or frustrated by that or anything. But I would imagine that they were able to explain why they were doing this and what the thinking was and that they still have extremely high hopes for him. Yeah. 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 I don't think that there's any, uh, I doubt that this has really moves the needle internally. Now, if he continues to struggle in the outfield, like, I think you do have to figure, you got to figure something out, but like, he's a good athlete and you're right that it's a new position and they have every incentive to try to figure something out for him because, you know, the potential in his bat is so profound. (laughs) Um, and so I, I suspect it'll be fine. You know, there aren't a lot of guys on the board with like, 80s on their game and raw power, but Jordan Walker mm-hmm. is one of them. So, yeah, will it be fine for the Cardinals though? I don't know, man. Like they had a weird <laughs> infield freaky Friday. Like maybe, maybe the solution is just to put Jordan Walker on the infield because their really good <laughs> infield defenders had a a loosey goosey night the other day. <laughs> yeah, I I just maybe we can close just by wondering about their playoff odds and their sort of setup for the rest of the season because. They've started 9-16, and 16, and actually another central team, the White Sox, they're 7-18, and 18, and those two teams are the ones that have suffered, I, I think, maybe the, the biggest declines in yeah. playoff odds since the start of the season. We'll have to look at the, the change since opening day in playoff odds, and obviously the Rays are up about 30 percentage points, and the Twins are up about 23 percentage points, which (laughs) pertains to the White Sox slow start, as well as uh, the Guardians being off to a a fairly slow start, too. So the Twins and the Rays, they're the big gainers in playoff odds thus far. The Orioles also up about 19 percentage points. The Cubs are in double digits. The Pirates, those Pirates up 20 percentage points. But the decliners, the big decliners, are really the White Sox and the Cardinals. The White Sox are down 28 percentage points. The Cardinals are down 27 percentage points. And the Cardinals were seen as favorites to win the NL Central, right? I mean, I certainly picked them to win the NL Central. I think they ranked pretty high on our our team fun draft, too, right? Like, yeah. we, we both remarked, hey, the Cardinals seem fun this year. Like, there are a lot of reasons to be excited about the Cardinals and watch the Cardinals. And then the season started, <laughs> and it has not been as fun to watch them as anticipated. So... They're down now to like a 22% chance to win the division. 
about a 39% chance to win, make the playoffs. Like it's, it's just, it's not customary to see the Cardinals just having a fairly like being in last place, you know, at, at any point in the season, I know it's still April, but it's just, uh, it's unfamiliar to see them struggling this way. So I wonder whether it will stick. I mean, you know, the Phillies started this way last season and they ended up uh, winning a pennant, but that was unusual and they weren't a great team and they didn't win their division. So will the Cardinals correct course and, and will it be enough? <sighs> I just don't know how you take down the pirates, you know, like, right. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think that the pirates will win the central. We don't have to belabor that point. I do think that putting yourself in a little bit of a hole is not the best when, like, I don't think that the brewers are a bad team, right. And they're 16 and nine. And I think that the Cubs are pesky. I think they have the potential to be pesky. I don't think they're good, but they're pesky. And then the Reds are the Reds. But also, um, I think that uh, all that needs to happen is like a 10-game winning streak, and then we're going to be like, ah, here they yeah, are. You know? right. so, like, I, the Cardinals I just, are capable of that. They <laughs> of are capable much of Much longer that. than 10-game winning streaks, in fact. Yeah. There's so much time left. You know, mm-hmm. there, It's not even the end of April. It's close, but it's, it's not May yet, you know? So, I... I think um, that it is appropriate for their odds to have been adjusted down given how they've played so far, but there are a lot of very talented um, players on that team. I mean, the the fundamental issue is that the rotation is still it's bad, bad, it's pretty bad rotation. So, um, you know, they're going to have to either score a lot of runs or go get some help, um, mm-hmm. which is not out of the realm of possibility that they just try to go get some help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're they're eight and a half games back, which sounds bad. Of course, they're eight and a half games back of the Pirates, right. who will come back to the pack at some point. They're still seven back of the Brewers. And again, that's uh, kind of concerning because yeah. you know the Brewers will be there. They're always around. Yeah, they're not right? a bad team. Yeah. So we knew that the rotation would be a problem. Yeah. But some other guys who were expected to, to contribute and help mash to make up for that have have not as of yet but we'll see i i still like i was pretty confident in the cardinals when the season started yeah me too it's definitely a concerning start but i imagine that from now on they will play a lot more like the cardinals uh, like we anticipated that they would and so it's just a question of have they dug too deep a hole and how good will the other teams in that division be and i don't know but i'm certainly not counting them out yet as for the white Sox, though yeah man you know That's, it's <laughs> that i um i i think it's it's a real problem i think they're in real trouble i think it's I think it's really bad over there, Ben. It's not great. Yeah, no. I, I, I don't think that Tony Larusa was a good manager, but clearly he was not the only problem. <laughs> so, right. really, like they've had all sorts of injury issues. Last year, they had like more wins lost to injury than any other team, and that was a big problem. And also, it exposed their lack of roster depth, right? And the fact that when anyone would get hurt, like they just would not have a competent backup and it would just be a steep fall off from the first string guy to the second or third string guy. And that's still an issue, but all even the first string guys in many cases are not 
playing particularly well. And so I don't know what you do about that. I mean, like Luis Robert is not playing well. They went and got Andrew Benatendi and he's, eh, you know, not playing particularly well. Not that he's like a star or anything. Ole Jimenez has been healthier, but he hasn't hit at all. So a lot of it was like, if we could just keep everyone healthy and in the lineup, then we'll be all right. And even to the extent that they've done that, it has not been all right. Like they've had, you know, three kind of above par hitters to this point, Yasmani Grandal, Jake Berger, and Andrew Vaughn. And most of them aren't doing incredibly well either. And then you have some apparent holes. I mean, you know, Oscar Colas is yeah. uh, exciting in some ways, but but doesn't appear to be ready. And uh, the, his pitching has, has been an issue too. Like no one's doing that great. Dylan Cease has been pretty good. But other than that, I mean, Lance Lynn is struggling. It's just, it's been kind of a top to bottom <laughs> failure. It's been, yeah. it's, it's like failing on all cylinders right now. It's, it's just not great. And I don't know if, if the White Sox fall out of it this year, Gosh, I mean, their whole rebuild and and window and contention, it just kind of landed with a a thud. Thud. Yeah. A thud. And it's, you know, there's no help coming, right? right? Like, their farm system is very thin. And they do have a couple of interesting guys, but, like, their their farm— system is not good. And in in the past, that has been a reflection of the fact that like they had a bunch of really good prospects and then those guys made their way to the majors. And they do have two guys who are on our top 100 coming into the season. But I don't think that like Colson Montgomery and Brian Ramos are like saving the White Sox this year, you know? So it's, um, it's not a good, it's not a good system. And the, the big league club is floundering. So mm-hmm. I don't know how they get better because you can't trade your way out of it and the appetite to spend is limited. We saw some of it this off season, but I think we agreed at the time that it was in like kind of weird spots potentially. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's not, it doesn't feel great over there. No. (sighs) Yeah. The the promise of that rebuild and just the number of exciting players that they had and still have and just how fun a group it seemed to be. And then La Russa came in and that it was bad because it was like you're sort of squandering or at least not maximizing your window with these guys. And they were decent his first year. And then lots of stuff went wrong, not just La Russa last year. And now he's gone and maybe it's too late and maybe there just isn't enough depth there. And at some point, like they'll get Tim Anderson back and, right. and maybe they'll get Moncada back and maybe he'll play better. And Liam Hendricks is healthy, which is the important thing with him, but he'll be back at some point. Right. Yeah. So they'll they'll get closer to full strength, assuming, of course, that they don't lose a lot of guys in the interim, which is also a possibility. But yeah, if if it all goes awry this year, then I don't, like, are you in rebuild territory? Like, where do you even go? Do you blow it up and try to fix the farm system and give it another go a few years down the road? Or do you try to milk another year out of this group? Or, gosh, I don't know. It's it's a bummer that it wound up this way, at least thus far. Yeah, I don't I don't know, man. It's, it's tricky because it, it does feel like 
there are there are obviously aspects of the organization that have worked well. They have been able to identify talent that has has helped them for stretches, although it hasn't stayed healthy at the same time. But I think that when you think about clubs that are behind um, in terms of it, uh, the the sort of commitment to the baseball operations group, the success of player dev, like the, the White Sox are on that list. So like now you're in a pickle because you can't player dev your way out of it. And we all know the um, organizational appetite for spending your way out. So what does that leave you with? Like you're going to have potentially high draft picks, but have you done a really good job in that regard lately? So. Yeah. <laughs> It's not great. When I had to do my preseason predictions for the ringer, we have to pick a surprise team. And I picked the White Sox as a surprise team. I didn't pick them as a playoff team. I picked them as a surprise team, I guess, because I thought if they were good, it would be a surprise, <laughs> And which I guess you could say about a lot of teams. But also, I thought like there was a legitimate chance sure. that they had a, a chance to surprise, right? Because there's a lot of talent there. And I thought, hey, if they can just stay healthy, maybe things will go better than they did last year. But not so far. Anyway, it's, uh, again, still April. So there is time. They're seven games back of the Twins. Each of these divisions, we're talking about the centrals here. So there's not a true powerhouse. And these are winnable divisions. And you can get hot and in a matter of weeks, make up a lot of ground. Plus, while the White Sox have been outscored by 55 runs and have deserved their record according to base runs, the Cardinals have been outscored by only three runs and are three games below where they quote-unquote should be, which is another reason to be more optimistic about the Cardinals than the White Sox. But the early returns, concerning. Yeah, it's it's not the best. All right, so let's end with a past blast, which comes from 1999 and also from David Lewis, an architectural historian and baseball researcher based in Boston. And here's what he has for us. 1999, Padres bring Brooks to spring training. This is not the current Padres who have unlimited roster spots and sign an unlimited number of middle infielders. Jose Iglesias signed by the Padres now. I mean, I know probably what? just for for minor league depth, but but like, <laughs> how many shortstops do you have to have all of them? Really, like, do you must you corner the market on it's all like of Pokemon. the shortstops? You need like redundancies in case the first five shortstops get hurt. Anyway. In 1999, the San Diego Padres spring training roster included an unusual non-roster invitee. 37-year-old country music star Garth Brooks joined the then-defending <laughs> National right. League champions. Yeah, we're now into the, the past blasts where I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember that. I remember that. that. Oh, <laughs> I was no. alive and conscious and a, a baseball fan at that time. So Garth Brooks joined the then-defending National League champions for the spring in part as a fundraising effort. For his place on the roster, Brooks donated $200,000 to Major League Baseball's Touch Em All Foundation, a children's charity he helped start. Unlike some other celebrity sightings at spring training, such as the in-game experiences of Will Ferrell and Billy Crystal, Brooks stayed the whole spring with the team and appeared in a number of games, including a start on March 17th. As reported in the Tucson Citizen, Padres manager Bruce Bochy said of Brooks, he's been working his tail off, and I told him a couple of weeks ago he'd get a start here. He's been making a lot of improvements, and I'm looking forward to watching him play. 
Ahead of his first appearance in the starting lineup, Brooks said, It's funny how the responsibility pops up when you get called on to start. I just want to hit the ball back hard instead of just getting the bat on it. So he was even older than Drew Maggi when mm. Drew Maggi got his first start. While Brooks went 0 for 4 for the day to begin the spring 0 for 17, he would not be held hitless overall. His determination to hit the ball hard paid off on March 21st when he notched a single off of White Sox pitcher Mike Soraka. Overall, Brooks ended the spring 1 for 22, good for a 045 batting average. Brooks returned to the field for various fundraising appearances throughout the years. In 2000, he played for the Mets, where he went 0 for 17, but collected four walks. In 2004, he suited up for the Royals and got his second hit, an infield single on March 10th. In 2019, Brooks made one last appearance to date, joining the Pittsburgh Pirates to celebrate 20 years of his charity, although he did not intend to see any game time. Must be fun to be a celebrity sometimes. It's just like, I'm a country no. music star. I've got disposable income. I can uh, set up a charity to help kids. And also, I can play in spring training Major League Baseball games because uh, that'd be fun. And <laughs> I know how to play and I like baseball. And uh, wouldn't that be a lark? So. But- but what they should have done, Ben, what they should have done is they should have reassigned him to minor league camp and then he could have sung that he has friends in low places. Well, yeah. Or they, they could have put him on stilts and made him the mascot. But yeah, I don't know that I would want to do this if I were a celebrity and no. had the option to do it because, uh, again, like there would be a fun, you know, living your dream fantasy camp aspect to it. But also, I it, it's spring training and so who cares really? But also... I don't know that I would want to thrust myself into that situation and take a whole bunch of overs just like as sort of a, a stunt, even if it's for a good cause. Yeah. I don't know. That's the age old question about like, would you actually want to play in a major league game, you know, just to say that you did? Because on the one hand, that'd be cool and you'd be a big leaguer. You'd get that pension, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but but also you'd probably embarrass yourself and maybe it's embarrassing to want to seize the spotlight knowing you're not qualified for it there are a whole lot of considerations yeah. sam wrote about that one time yeah i think that like i could see wanting to do it for one game the persistence yeah. is the thing that is surprising to me because like if yes. you're garth brooks you're like well am i garth brooks or i'm what was his alter ego's name oh yeah G- Gaines? <laughs> chris, chris, chris chris Gaines. yeah is that yeah. right yes that's right um you know he could have been like <laughs> what was it is it me is it chris Gaines? Ah! um <laughs> But like, you know, I, I get wanting to be philanthropic and, you know, I I get that piece of it. But continuing to do it, it's like, you know, Garth, you can just donate the money. You don't have to keep doing this piece of it. Like, it's, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. His Wikipedia page says very kindly, very charitably in keeping with uh, Brooks's charity. Brooks's performance on the field did not warrant management placing him on the regular season roster. However, he was offered a non-roster spot, but declined it. Huh. huh. So, so that's uh, there's a, an AP article headlined Brooks pulls plug on baseball career. And this was uh, apparently, yeah, seems the country crooner bowed out gracefully after a showy six weeks at spring training in Peoria, turning down an offer by the Padres to travel with the team for the first month as a hmm. non-roster player. Wow. Huh. Hmm. That's uh 
Boy, they really went all in on that. I mean, yeah. look, I like some country music. I imagine sure. many major leaguers like their country music. Yes. So you'd think that in most cases they would resent the presence of a celebrity interloper like this. But maybe if it's Garth Brooks and a lot of baseball players listen to his music and like his music, at least at that time, then they might have welcomed it. They might have thought it was uh, kind of cool that it wouldn't mess up the clubhouse vibes to have right. – <laughs> but it, it, Kevin Towers said, the uh, the late GM, then GM of the Padres, the closer it got to the season starting, I think this is the type of guy Garth is. He saw this as maybe potentially costing a young prospect or player a spot on a roster and didn't want that to happen. And then he and then third base coach Tim Flannery played too many concerts for Padre staffers. So he was playing and also giving concerts. <laughs> so, gosh, would have been uh, a fun six weeks, yeah. I guess, a, a weird six weeks, but yeah. probably for the best that he decided not to stay with the team for the rest of this. Because uh, at some point, probably the, the thrill would have worn off and you would have wondered, what's this guy doing here? Yeah, I, I think after a while, you'd be like, don't we have business to do? <laughs> yeah, the Tower said he was an inspiration to our players. The passion he had for the game of baseball and the way he went about it, it's a good reminder for all of us. And also, apparently... He signed autographs for fans for three hours every night. So, so that's a, a good little draw. They all said they missed the cowboy, just having him around, you know? There was something special about him being around everybody. Huh. huh. What a weird story. Anyway, what a weird story. Re- reminds me of an email we got years ago, 2019, that I've had starred and sitting in the inbox ever since. Not in the inbox. I like to keep my inbox clean. But, you know, starred from... Daniel, who wrote in, <laughs> this was uh, when Tim, Tim Tebow was playing, and uh, Daniel said, with all the talk of trying to reach a mass audience and Tim Tebow, I had an idea. What if every team had a 26th roster spot? This was before <laughs> there was a 26th roster spot at every team. So let's say a 27th roster spot that could not be used by an MLB player, but instead was utilized by a celebrity. So you must play the celebrity slot at least once a week. Let's say Justin Timberlake has one of these slots for the Dodgers. How would you use the celebrity slot to hurt your team the least? Mm. Pinch run, garbage time pitcher. Also, what celebrity would garner the most attention? I guess that answer has probably changed since 2019. I mean, (laughs) probably the celebrities who would garner the most attention probably would not be the most likely to want to do this or to be good at it, I would think, probably. When you have like the celebrity softball game, some of them are real big celebrities. Some of them, you know, C-list, D-list, let's say. You, you got to find the ones who are big baseball fans and have some idea how to play baseball or softball. So that's a constraint for sure. But the idea of the celebrity roster spot, we started by talking about the, the Drew Maggi honorary roster spot. And now we're finishing with the Garth Brooks honorary celebrity roster spot. In this case, though, you'd actually have to use them. I mean, look, we have so many position player pitchers now. Right, then right. You could, you could just have the celebrity pitch an inning here or there, and no one would really notice the difference. <laughs> so. Yeah, potentially. But, yeah, I think um, r- running late might be the, the least impactful, you know? Mm-hmm. 
would be a, a good way to get some eyeballs on the game, you know, at the cost of like competitive integrity and 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 self respect, perhaps. But hey, let's get some influencers on the field, and uh, then we will cater to the TikTok crowd or whatever who follows yeah. them and get some young eyes on baseball. So that would be a stunt. But I, I guess, yeah, these days there's there's a lot of garbage time, a lot of mismatches, a lot of low leverage innings, and a lot of non real pitchers pitching so might as well have them be famous <laughs> why not yeah. yeah why not that will do it for today i guess we never figured out the stilts question can we go with rumpelstiltskin let's go with that couple follow-ups we talked about the most common birth months for major leaguers last time august was at the top when it came to paternity leaves well as some people have pointed out that's also just the most common birth month in the u.s period not just for major leaguers that july through october period tends to be big for births i guess because the winter months tend to be big for staying inside and when one stays inside sometimes one thing leads to another. Also, we have it on good authority that the Dodgers are not done reproducing. I believe Caleb Ferguson is expecting next month. I don't know if he's the only one, but they are going for the paternity leave placement record. I wish them well. Also talked last time about the origin of the use of velocity instead of speed in baseball writing and conversation. My hypothesis was that Branch Rickey either invented or popularized it, and I think the latter is more likely because I've heard from a couple of listeners who found some earlier citations than I did in my cursory search, predating the mid-60s Ricky examples I cited. In fact, there were earlier Ricky references uncovered in the early 50s in scouting reports in his archive. But thanks to listener Dennis for flagging some earlier examples going back to the 1920s, and also listener Ben Zimmer of the Wall Street Journal, who writes about language for that paper and does this sort of research professionally. So I believe he will be writing about it sometime soon, so I won't spoil his finds. But I will let you know if and when that article is published. Still think Ricky probably played a role in popularizing the use of the term in baseball. Finally, someone on Twitter mentioned that I had mispronounced the name of Manny Trio on the last episode. I don't even remember how he came up, but if I did that, I apologize. I do endeavor to get name pronunciations right, but sometimes I'll just be reading names and facts and figures while we're recording and my attention is divided, and sometimes I make mistakes, and then people point them out, and I correct them if I can. Oh, and after we recorded, the Cardinals beat the Giants, shut out the Giants, in fact, and the White Sox got trounced by the Rays. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay almost ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Kyle Hackle, Kenneth Silverhand, Andrew Simpson, and Kevin Warwick. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only. More and more members and listeners flocking to our banner in the Discord group. It's a great place and all of our Patreon people are welcome. We also get access to monthly bonus episodes, plus playoff live streams, ad-free fancrafts, memberships, much merch. Check out all the options at patreon.com slash effectivelywild. One option, if you are a member, is to message us through that site. If not, you can contact us via email at podcast at fangraphs.com. You can also rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. We'll be back with one more episode before the end of the week. Talk to you then.